In this episode of Science Stories, I had a great conversation with Dr. Goldner. His work used to be going out and sampling bugs and extract their blood in look for parasites. Then he did a lot of disease modeling and he even got into using genetics for biocontrol. Nowadays, he works for a non-profit organization connecting scientists with funding agencies. We talked about sampling grackles in parking lots, the national US tick collection, and even about his viral video of him poking an anaconda in the middle of the jungle. I'm not kidding. Check it out in Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome everybody. Today I'm super happy to introduce my guest. Today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Andrew Goldner. He got his PhD in entomology from Texas A&M University. Dr. Goldner is a disease ecologist with a background in entomology and genetic biocontrol. Throughout his training, he studied a variety of blood parasites, biting insects, birds, and mammals to better understand how pathogens persist and amplify in different ecological communities using a mix of genetics, mathematical modeling, and experimental infection trials. How are you doing, Dr. Goldner? I'm doing good. It's a bit hot. I don't really have a good AC setup in my place, but um, yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Of course. So I think you have a really interesting scientific path from when you started until now. Can you please walk us through this path? Like, for example, your undergrad, your master's, and your PhD. How did that go? You don't want me to start younger? <laughs> no, honestly, I think the path actually starts after high school. I think I almost became a linguistic. But yeah, so I went to the University of Denver. I grew up in Montana and Colorado. And so I kind of had this split in high school where I moved um, from Livingston, Montana to uh, Salida, Colorado. And at that point, really, I, I see it as an opportunity. Obviously, it was sad leaving all my friends, but it really shifted my priorities from you know doing sports or whatever um, which is probably good because, you know, I stopped growing. Um, so, uh, but I, I uh, ended up getting into um, the arts more and supporting my community. And um, I actually did a little bit of ESL. So English is a second language. And through all that, I, I actually thought I was going to end up becoming a doctor. Um, saw that as sorry, a good way to help everybody. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, what, what does ESL, ESL mean? Like, what did you actually do? Did you go and help non-native speakers with their language or what? Yeah, actually, so up in Salida, Colorado, we have a lot of, um, well, we have a ski area that's nearby. And so we get a lot of um, travelers, I suppose, from Argentina. And so, in fact, my Spanish accent these days tends to have an Argentine 
accent with it just because that's kind of how I learned. Okay, I, they, I, they, might, I might test that at the end of this show. Yeah, great. Okay. Let's, let's, yeah, for all the Spanish speakers, let's translate everything. <laughs> uh, that would be very embarrassing. In fact, I've, I've tried to do that and I had to switch over. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, you know, I think my path led me to the University of Denver where I thought I was becoming a medical doctor. And I think I quickly learned that that's not what I'm interested in. And I would say that, you know, becoming a medical doctor to me feels more like being maybe not necessarily an engineer, but you, you know, you're following a path to like diagnose. Right. And I've always felt like I'm more on the discovery end and I want to exit outside of the boundaries and write the textbook, not learn the textbook. And so, you know, working down that path, I got into conservation biology, as most people do, they're interested in the environment. And that led me, you know, to looking into different ecology principles. But really, it's when uh, my between my sophomore and junior year of college, where I had an awesome opportunity. Well, the first opportunity was one of my own being, but the second one was going to uh, Ecuador for study abroad. But really, I worked in New Orleans for the rodent mosquito pest control board as an intern the summer uh, in new orleans and i was out there catching massive rats and killing mosquitoes and uh still to this day i talk about this i call it the king rat that i found in this alley and it had three legs and it was massive and you know i'm wait, catching rats mostly to get rid of them wait and I, it was i cannot let you home. go go past this so how did you <laughs> catch the rats uh you just put down little like traps and they walk into it and it shuts. So it's pretty simple. We what, what did you bait them before. with? Oh, all sorts of baits. And so there was a little bit of study there, but you know, peanut butter, um, wet dog food, tuna. I mean, which one honestly, worked best for you? I, I really didn't find that any worked better than the other. Okay. It was so dense there. You just put them out, you'd catch them. And sometimes you catch the same ones. How, so they, how they many would you care. catch in each trap? Yeah, uh, you only get one generally okay. in each trap. But if there was like, you know, y generally we caught one per trap. And mosquitoes, how did you, did you catch them or just kill them? We, we would set up traps, um, we collect them. And then there's also studies to look at how the, the you know, cocktail of pesticides, which ones were killing which. Um, and so those were- What does a mosquito trap mosquitoes. look like? A mosquito trap would look like more like a mesh net on top. That's where they're like kind of contained. But on the bottom, we have more or less like a, a cooler, you know, those coolers that, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, you'd bring to a baseball game full of ice, but we'd fill those with dry ice. And so it slowly seeps out and they're attracted to the dry ice and then they would get sucked in by a fan. And so, yeah, just these mesh nets hanging from trees generally. What, why are they attracted to the dry ice? Um, it's just a cue that they look for to know that there is a host something that they can feed on. Um, our skin gives it off, our breath gives it off, and so they just cue in on that. Yeah, because for people that don't know, dry ice is not water, right? Right, dry ice is just, I guess, hard CO2, and it's very cold, and it also can burn you. Yeah, it's, you know, if you've ever gone to Halloween and someone puts something in the water to make it look smoky, that's dry ice. And then after that, that's, that's amazing. And then after that <laughs> summer, What, what happened? So that, yeah, that so, was a life-changing yeah. experience in a sort That was life-changing. I think it was really hard work, um, really, really trying situations and just super hot summer. But um, yeah, I ended up in Ecuador. Um, and in Ecuador, I went and saw all sorts of locations, really did some comparative ecology. So really just studying how's the rainforest 
different than, you know, the high deserts, which is different than, you know, the beach ecosystems. And that gave me an appreciation for how different areas have different, you know, organisms, but really there's similar niches, as we say, in these different areas. But my focus was always on disease. And, you know, I had a good experience for about a month studying spider monkeys, but really exiting that experience, I did meet some folks that gave me an opportunity over at the CDC, so the Center for Disease Control up in uh, Fort Collins, which is about an hour north from where I was at in Denver for undergrad. So I ended up working there for, I guess, about two years, but it was more so like an internship. I was able to get funding from the university to work there. And I just went out and tried to collect mosquitoes around wetland areas where we have this red-winged blackbird. And the, the idea was that these red-winged blackbirds that tend to sleep in groups in wetlands where there's lots of mosquitoes might be driving the amplification and transmission of West Nile virus, which is a virus of concern, you know, up in Colorado, really across the whole United States. But um, yeah, the question is like, are these groups of birds and how they're sleeping really amplifying the virus? And really the answer we found was, I don't know. So <laughs> that was great. It was a good experience and putting a lot of effort into really not getting a good signal on one direction or the other in science. Okay, first of all, I think it's amazing that you got a lot of hands-on experience while you were an undergrad, right? And that's not generally the case, or, or do you think that's generally the case or not? Um, no, honestly, I don't think it's the case. Yeah, and so I, I, went to I don't private either. I, th I think that's really good, really uh, a really good way to approach the career, right? Well, I mean, if I'm offering advice at this point, absolutely. I think that any internship you can do, paid or unpaid, is an experience that's going to be more valuable than a job. And so I'd say unpaid experiences are the way to go. And obviously not everybody can do that. And I happen to be in a position where I got lucky. I would say I kind of fell into one thing. And so, yeah, falling into that CDC position, working with mosquitoes, that really led to an opportunity to even for someone to take a flyer on me for grad school. So, you know, and then, science yeah, so I want to, I wanted to ask you um, the following. So you had a, a lot of research, and a lot of work put into, put into a project that basically it, it, you could say that it, it failed because you didn't know the answer, right? You said well, the answer was, I didn't know, right? It was, correct. It, it was not even, no, it's not, it's, I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, and that's, <laughs> so yeah, the scientific enterprise, it doesn't work so simply as I have a hypothesis, let me go test and get an answer. It's okay, you know, we want to work in this area. What are our testable hypotheses, we go collect data. And oftentimes you end up answering questions you didn't even know you're going out to answer. And so, no, we didn't figure out how red-winged blackbirds contribute to West Nile virus. And, you know, really we just needed to catch more mosquitoes because what we were looking for were mosquitoes that had fed on these birds so we could study the blood from the birds and understand if there's viruses there or if they were predominantly feeding on red-winged blackbirds or other species of organisms in the area because we can actually look at that blood and understand what species they fed on which helps us you know understand who or what could actually amplify virus but what we did figure out um was we, we found a new virus for the area which was whole fascinating process for myself, right? I'm learning methods. And basically what we do is we take the blood and then we plate it on some cells where the, the virus can actually infect. And so um, by doing that, we actually isolated a virus. It didn't look like West Nile virus. And so we were like, what is it? <laughs> Here we are growing some virus from you know nature. And so through a very 
various procedures, we were able to identify it as this um, Flanders virus, which is similar to heart part virus, but the history of it, you know, it's basically described well in the East, described well in the West, but not really in the middle. And so questions how it got here, either it's been here forever or no one's looked, or maybe the, it's related to bird migration. But, you know, that opened up a lot of questions around, you know, what is this virus? Is it pathogenic to um, birds? What, what is its impact? And all this as an undergrad, I guess when you applied to a PhD program, they were happy to take you with all these experiences that you had, right? I mean, I can't really speak to how happy they were to take me, but honestly, I think having the Center for Disease Control on your CV, it, help, it helps. And by no means were any of these projects tied up by the time I was applying for grad school. Truth is, I finished publishing and pulling together that research probably like three or four years into my grad school dissertation. So it, you know, it moves slow, it moves slow. So if you're publishing when you're an undergrad, that's definitely going to be a highlight and something that's going to give you a lot of credit moving forward. But truth is not everybody gets that or gets clean opportunities like that. And I guess if I, you know, whenever I'm at the reins looking for the next generation, that's not something I'm going to look at. I'm going to look at what type of work you've done, what skills you've learned and how you think. And then after your PhD, so we'll, we'll talk about your PhD when we go over your work. After your PhD, what was your path? I moved back up to Colorado and I got a position with the United States Department of Agriculture. And so, as you can imagine, it's a massive organization. And so they have all sorts of institutions. And I was working within APHIS, which is the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. And so within that, um, I was working in uh, wildlife services which is really focused right on our interactions with wildlife and how that might impact agricultural systems. And within that, I was focused on the research branch, which was really trying to develop new tools on how to manage wildlife populations, which predominantly is focused on pest populations, but disease is obviously a form of, uh, you know, a pest or uh, an impact on humans or agricultural systems. If you're thinking plants, So yeah, I, and within that, I worked on you know African swine fever virus. Um, I did a work with um, Gene Drive, um, but yeah, mainly my work was um, modeling within those systems. But that's not what you do now. And that is not what I do now. So I spent about three years, or yeah, almost three years with the USDA, um, and I you know I had a, what I think was a great opportunity as a fellow. Uh, and really was given the reins to kind of move forward with a high risk novel technology. But the truth is when you're working at like cutting edge at the level of translating into applied, you run into a lot of roadblocks and especially with something like gene drive technology, right? We're trying to alter organisms. How do we alter them and not have a massive impact at landscape scale? Um, and the truth is this isn't just like genetically engineering, you know, I don't know, strawberries to taste like lemons, um, which I don't know why anybody would do that, but <laughs> you're actually adding in an element that makes it infectious. So every time, you know, there's a birth process of the meeting of, you know, a male and female, and then they're pr providing their gametes or their sexual or, or their DNA, instead of like having like a shared 50-50, you could have 100% of a certain gene be passed on. And so Really what you're looking at is almost infection dynamics through um, evolution. And so what happens is if you release, say, a transgenic 
mosquito, it could possibly replace all other mosquitoes of that same species. And so it was an interesting place to work. And obviously I valued it, but I stepped out of that work into the nonprofit world where I'm zooming out from, you know, one very specific, I guess, applied technology and developing it out, looking at risk. And now I'm focused on the enterprise of science in general. And so, as you can imagine, how we grow knowledge, that's massive. And how does any one person even think at that level? Um, and so where, where we're focused is trying to funnel funding into supporting discovery sciences. So sciences that we really don't even know what the impact will be. But the truth is, this type of research provides, if you will, the materials to like build all the other technologies that are advancing our world today. And so if we don't keep funneling money into this type of work, our, in, our ability to innovate is just gonna collapse. And so as you can imagine, it's difficult to funnel money into a concept that doesn't have any direct impact. And so that's continually a problem. And so it comes down to science communication and really kind of providing the background on how we got to certain technologies, right? Like the mRNA vaccine, as one example. So you've, you've went from catching rats yourself, killing mosquitoes yourself, right? To being in the bench, right? Being in the, in the, in the lab working and processing samples and, and, and doing all, all that processing after going to the field. Then you got into modeling, right? Another, yet another discipline. And now you're more in the administrative or the long-term planning of science. So you, you've been almost in every stage of the process. Is there any phase that you miss? I mean, probably. <laughs> Maybe the phase of like being successful <laughs> and, <laughs> and getting money. <laughs> and maybe that's why I've transitioned out. I mean, the truth is, you know, everybody goes into science thinking they're going to become faculty or professor. And it's getting crowded, right? And it's tough to break into that world. And I was at that stage to keep trying and I shifted out and I'm not looking back. But uh, yeah, maybe that is something I missed out on. And so... I would say that mentorship at that level is something I'm not doing and I hope to do, but I don't, I don't quite know how I'll do it maybe from, you know, where I'm at right now. But you know, there's, there's always a trajectory to do mentorship in different capacities. You've mentioned so many things I want to talk to you about, but before, so let's, I have an idea. Let's do one more question. Then we go to a break. Then we go come back and talk about your research, and then we talk about your stories. That I did a little bit of research on you, and you have a lot of funny stories and interesting stories to share. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? Ooh, um, I don't think so. I, I do not think so. I think that kind of underpinning my background as a scientist is curiosity, and really the scientific field supports curiosity but i do think that like any profession the longer you do it you kind of get stuck in bureaucracy and so yeah i i would say that i'm just a curious person and i love learning and that probably describes why i keep hopping into different professions so maybe next i'll just you know finally dive into my desire to become a pop artist who knows <laughs> who knows right <laughs> all right we're listening to science stories Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. Uh -huh. 
Can't think, can't sleep, can't breathe. Uh. Can't think, can't. Everything getting harder to find. Everybody jumping out of their mind. Everybody going out of their skin. See, we get to the end, but that's where we begin. You feel it? What are we listening to? <laughs> that I, you know, I think this is just a song that was uncovered during the pandemic. Sometimes I felt like I was in an endless pit, <laughs> falling. I always ask my guests to pick songs, and I'm always surprised by what they picked. It's amazing. It's so, so different from one scientist to another. It's 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 really good. Okay, so yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about your research. Yeah. Um. Great. I guess. Where do you want me to start? So in your latest article, the one that you published uh, last year, you talk okay. you talk a little bit about some amazing features of grackles. So it was not the it was not the objective of the article to to talk about grackles, like, but you mentioned you mentioned some interesting facts about grackles that they they can eat dead insects off license plates, right? They yeah. they can shadow farm machinery to collect uncover invertebrates. And they roost in well-lit urban parking lots. When you were sampling for your study, did you see any of these or any other amazing behaviors like the ones that you that you mentioned? You know, I didn't. Um, Great-tailed grackles—they have a a fascinating story. To be honest, like I loved writing about them and reading about them. And so much was cut um, when you write these papers, right? Um, but I, they're fascinating because of their ability to adapt whatever environment they are in. And I mean, anybody in Texas has probably seen these massive flocks roosting together at night. It almost feels like a horror story. I actually but, have a question from the audience. Oh, yeah. Why do they love to to hang out at HEB parking lots so much? Um, HEB parking lots are well lit um, and they're not very dangerous, I suppose. So I they... I don't think it's because there's excess food or anything like that. I think it's just, they just leave on their lights at night. And so the birds themselves feel protected. And in general, these birds are well adapted to human modified landscapes. So ag systems where they're clear cut and maybe a few trees here and there. And HEV is a similar landscape. You're just pavement instead of, you know, a clear cut field, but um, they're, they're not the same ecology as you kind of move northward Um, or southward. And so it's it's fascinating to see how different they are. And so where they're really eating bugs off license plates, that's over um, in the deserts over in the West uh, where they just can't find food, but they can survive because they've learned to feed off these insects that cars are hitting as they're driving around. Um, and and I mean, I guess they have a, a lineage of that's from royalty, I suppose. Uh, the truth is, or I, I have no idea if this is truth, but the story goes that 
Quetzalcoatl, so you know the Aztec king back in the day down in Mexico, he liked the birds because they have a nice sheen to them, and they used to live on the coast, so the I guess eastern coast of Mexico, and he just ordered someone to bring over a flock into Mexico City because he liked them, and then since then they've expanded north all the way up into Washington, where we see some populations, and then extended south all the way down into Venezuela. And so, just due to that human movement, now we see them everywhere. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! Yeah, and and you mentioned that that there's it's a species that has benefited a lot from getting involved with humans, right? Yeah, exactly. So you could call it an invasive species, but you know, in the end, it depends on if that's you know a beneficial organism to humans or not. So they've definitely expanded in range. And for this study, you have to sample in urban parking lots, as as we talked, and usually around like grocery stores or gas stations or banks or restaurants. I'm I'm, I'm reading your I'm quoting your article. Yeah. Um, and you sent me a picture to promote the show that you have a picture at CVS. Yeah. That was uh, so <laughs> the way the study really started um, is basically it emerged out of a class projects. So you know my advisor and you know his partner at the time. Uh, I mean, they're still together, sure. But uh, that it was a genesis of their ideas to kind of look at these these bird species because they are everywhere. And that's kind of what our labs would do is kind of go out, collect wildlife, see what types of pathogens they have, especially wildlife that are interacting with vector-borne species. And so the questions we asked here, what types of ticks are these birds carrying? And then also what types of um, microorganisms are in their blood? And whether these microorganisms are shared then with you know the other community of birds that are around them, and really map you know questions that extend from that are they then bringing these microorganisms to other areas um, in the United States or have microorganisms come through them from areas you know down south? But um, yeah, basically to collect them, we would then study them in these urban environments. To so, collect them, around, did, did you have to reach out to the businesses and ask for permission? Oh yeah, absolutely. We had to get permission from the businesses in the city. And, you know, once we got all those approvals, we then had to figure out how to catch them. And that was the tough part because usually with mist netting, where we set up a net that birds can't really see, it's really fine. They basically fly into it and then they kind of fall into these little, like, I guess, baskets in the net that you can then pull them out of. And so they're unharmed um, and you get them out there quick so that the environment, whether it's hot or cold, it doesn't impact them. But um, for these birds, they wouldn't fly low because when they're in these roosts, those are pretty high. And so we had to figure out how to raise our nets from about, you know, five, six feet up to, you know, up. Yeah, I guess we had eight, them up eight to like meters, it says in the yeah, article. Eight meters. Yeah, so which is eight feet, how many? Like 24? Yeah, they were tall. We basically had the as biggest ladders you can get and the ability to kind of move it up and down in case, you know, one was in the high <laughs> part of the net. But, uh, It took a bit of constructing to figure out how to basically have a pole that could go up that high and hold the net, but still keep it taut. Um, and so, yeah, basically a lot of the strategy into just catching them relied on building a net that was tall enough and then being able to take them out on a ladder with someone else holding you, but also getting the birds to fly in because they're really smart. And so we ended up having to set up these nets like hours before they would show up. Because if one bird was kind of in the area, they would know. And so, and we had to kind of switch them up a little bit or only go every few weeks because then they'd build they would learn. Yeah. They would so learn the to avoid them really fast. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 
And how often did you recapture birds? Because in part of the methods you said that you, you would tag them with some sort of ring. So if you recapture one, you could tell. Yeah, so standard to collecting birds is we put like, a, we call it a band, but it has a uh, unique identifier on it. And so if these birds fly anywhere really in the world, the next person that catches them can log it and know where it came from and where it was. And so a massive data set like this has been collected for decades and is used to understand movement of birds and understand all sorts of processes relating to birds. And as you can imagine, the movement of pathogens is one process that's important to understand. And so for these birds, we had to get pretty big tags and we, we rarely recaught, to be honest, but at one point we did catch or someone reported collecting or finding a dead bird that we had marked a year later. And that bird happened to have some of the pathogens that we found. And so it allowed us to kind of glean how impactful some of those um, malaria parasites were in these birds. Um, but the truth is avian malaria in birds is so widespread. And there's so many different, you know, lineages is what we call them. They're not quite subspecies, but um, understanding what is a species in that concept and is still up in the air because often we're using genetic tags that are incomplete. Do these birds present any sort of threat for humans or other species? Um, so I suppose the only threat that they may pose um, from like a disease standpoint is they definitely have E. coli in their feces. And so as you can imagine, all those shopping carts underneath these trees, if they get E. coli poop on them, that could be a way of, you know, collecting E. coli in your food and then eating it. But I, you know, it is a pathway, but who knows how, pro, you know, prolific that pathway is. And Dr. Goldner, from the 59 adult birds that you capture, 49 were females. Mm. Why do you think males fall less on the nets than females? Oh, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, one could be they're just too big and they kind of bounce out of these nets that we had. Um, and that's likely the case. Um, I don't think that we're seeing you know, more females versus males in these populations. And Yeah. So, I mean, that would be my guess. I, you know, I have no other reason to believe anything else. Dr. Goldner, you also wrote an interesting piece about gene drive that you mentioned before. My question is, what is the difference between gene drive modified organisms and genetic modified organisms? So I'm talking about GMOs versus gene drive modified organisms. What, yeah. what, what are gene drive technologies? Right. So gene drive technologies, um, basically we've, scientists have uncovered ways to link genetic elements to what we could say is self-propagating mechanisms. So, you know, we all rely on genes to function every day and say, my brown eyes, maybe no one likes that. And they want my eyes to be, you know, green and all generations and humans to be green later on. Um, instead of speaking about humans, maybe we talk about rats. <laughs> so we want a bunch of blue eyed rats. Basically you could engineer a organism and yeah, you could have it have blue eyes and release it, but it's not, the genes are not going to take because every time it mates, it's going to be a 50, 50 mix of whatever it's mating with. And so it, it tends, those genes tend to fall out. 
And so what we do to override this and to really drive in a genotype that we want is we use these gene drive technologies. And basically, if I link, you know, a blue eye phenotype to one of these gene drive mechanisms, then every time that blue eyed rat that I release mates, then all the offspring are going to have blue eyes and then all their offspring will have blue eyes. And so basically over, you know, just very few generations, you can totally replace the population with a certain genotype. And as you can imagine, that's a very powerful idea. We could use it to, you know, make mosquitoes refractory to malaria. Um, We could use it to, you know, crash pest populations, you know, whether that's a mosquito or maybe something related to agriculture like mice. Um, And really it's endless how you could use that technology. Um, But the difference I guess would be between a GMO and a the GDMO, a gene drive modified organism, is the fact that you have that gene drive element. Can you um, can you explain what is a gene drive element? Because you said it has a mechanism to to prevail and and get passed along into the next generation. What is that mechanism? If it's not too complicated, it is complicated yet simple, right? So I think there's a few different mechanisms. Um, you know, the simplest would be thinking about CRISPR-Cas9. So a lot of talk around this discovery, it's opened up a lot of opportunity for doing knockout studies that are very pinpoint and precision. And so we can basically get rid of a gene or turn off a gene um, in organisms and then study specifically what that gene does by comparing it to those that have it. Or we could add in a gene, right? Or pump up a gene. And so we can do all sorts of questions to understand how genes relate to an actual, I don't know, a real life physiology. And so, what when you think about mating, we, there's basically two two alleles that um, if you want to kind of represent those as the two different strands of DNA. But basically, the 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 male and the female will contribute those, and you have at each gene two sites uh, that could be read and expressed. And so, what happens is one site when it has a gene drive, it basically cuts the other site and then replaces itself with that specific with its gene and so basically you're deleting the gene and so that's one mechanism within the point of conception where you could basically delete other genotypes and just insert you know the gene drive or the gene drive the genotype tied to the gene drive for it then to spread and so that's one mechanism and that can happen really before conception or it can happen during conception. And so it gets really complicated when you get into the details of how you achieve gene drive. And it can even be achieved at a population level where it's not really genetic mechanisms. And it's just, if you release such a large population of individuals that it overpowers the other population kind of takes over. Makes sense. Yeah, of course. Dr. Goldner, do you mind if we talk a little bit about the African swine fever virus? Sure. Um, can, can you explain briefly what it is? Yeah, oh, I mean, so African swine fever virus, it's a virus, I think it was first described in Africa, and it was in the, maybe the 20s or 30s. Um, but it's a virus that's incredibly pathogenic in like domestic swine. So basically, if they get it, it's like 99% of them die. And so from an agricultural standpoint, obviously, this is a problem. But, you know, if your farm gets it, basically they all die off and you're restricted on trade. And so if any country has this pathogen, 
basically trade restrictions become a major issue and that's a big economic hit. And so, you know, places like the US, you know, we proactively spend money to keep it out. Um, but more recently, we've seen it spread, you know, there's been active outbreaks in Europe and it's spread now down into China. Um, and we've even seen it close to the United States and we've had big response to go out and control the populations. And really the fear here is that we have feral swine all across the United States and the populations keep growing, even though we're throwing tons of money at it to limit them. And so the question is like, how well would this pathogen persist in these wild uh, species? And then can it spill over into domestic swine and wipe out our, you know, agricultural systems? But yeah, yeah sorry, I have, a, a, I have kind of a dumb question. Why isn't yeah. there a vaccine for this virus? Um, they're working on a vaccine. Um, and, I mean, why is there a vaccine for everything, right? Right. Like, we have plen plenty of neglected tropical diseases that even have, you know, therapeutics or vaccines, and then they're not implemented. And so I think really that this is probably more of a story of the people <laughs> that have the money probably have not cared as much about this pathogen because it's not in countries that have the money, right? So mm -hmm. you start off in Africa and you get spread maybe to Brazil, and then you've had some you know outbreaks in Spain. And then in Europe, they've been trying to control it. And it's just kind of a completely different situation there with wild boar and how it's maintaining itself. And so now it's down into China. And um, you know, there's questions if it's going to impact some of the, the, the rare species of the persistent problem in general across disease management is that there are plenty of diseases out there that are spreading along human you know, movement and trade. But which ones do we target and how do we stop that? And I think that proactive money and maintaining financial money to either do surveillance or suppress it, it, it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't been maintained politically. And, you know, I can't really speak to why that is, but, you know, I've heard it described as zeros fatigue, where oftentimes when you're out there doing surveillance and looking for something so you can stop it, if you keep getting, you know, not finding anything, then why do you put money into it? And so... When you try to do anything proactive, you often run into this situation of like, how are you proving you're doing anything? And I think that when you have plenty of other issues outside of just disease and limited resources, it's hard to kind of guard, guard and make sure that we're all, you know, prepared. So I was surprised to read that there is a U.S. national tick collection. Yes. Yeah. How does that work? Um, you know, I should know more about it, but I can guess. I imagine people find ticks and just send it into the collection. <laughs> and somebody so, just mean, keeps them there or what? Yeah, I mean, ticks are often stored, you know, you can freeze them and you can put them in ethanol. And yeah, I think that you just store them. And, and it's nice because you can then, you know, any type of collections, you go back and ask questions retroactively to understand, you know, what might have been happening to kind of glean information of what will happen. And so, you know, we're, we're discovering all sorts of new tick-borne viruses in the United States. And so this is a, likely a super helpful collection network, um, you know, and I, you know, we've used their data sets and I should know more about them, but that, I guess that's all I know based on my guesses. <laughs> so in the study, you say that there is no African swine fever virus in the U.S., but if it comes, we need to be careful with soft ticks because there's soft ticks and hard ticks. We need to be careful with soft ticks because those are the ones that have more potential to be vectors for this disease. Did you pass this information to any governing agency? Uh, I mean, this, this project really was born out of a contract 
from the Department of Homeland Security. And so I did my master's work at Texas A&M looking at Rift Valley fever virus and the potential ways this virus that, you know, is mainly in Africa and how it could get into the United States. And so generally it's a mosquito borne disease. And so a mosquito could get on a plane, make its way over here. It could, you know, maybe be in a ship and then the virus is maintained between the mosquito and the mosquito larvae forever. And then as it moves over, we get it here. Um, so that, and then understanding if it gets here, which species and which mosquitoes can help, you know, propagate it. So from that kind of reasoning, we then got a contract to look into other diseases such as African swine fever virus, Venezuelan and quine encephalitis, um, and heart water. Uh, and so through that, we were able to like kind of take the same, you know, questions and then understand which vectors are feeding on which hosts. And through that kind of process, you can then understand which hosts might be important to propagating it. Um, and, you know, soft ticks are the main vector for African swine fever virus, but it's a little bit different than vector-borne diseases I've worked on in the past, like West Nile virus or, you know, mosquito-borne diseases where it's like the mosquito vector and what it feeds on kind of amplifies, but mosquitoes die. They only live for like 30 days. Whereas these soft ticks, they can live up to like five, six years. And so people have infected them and they've like literally been infected two, three years later. And so this is a, uh, a reservoir in the environment if they feed on an infected pig and then just sit there waiting they wait in caves and they just kind of don't move until they get like a cue from co2 and then they just go and feed and the difference bet- of these soft ticks between hard ticks is that they actually feed very rapidly hard, hard ticks will sit on you you know for days um whereas soft ticks they'll be feeding and done in minutes and they'll get massive and so it creates new dynamics, right? If it comes here and we have soft ticks, which we do. And the question is whether some of these soft ticks can really maintain this virus, which is unclear. But, um, you know, these are neglected questions because really no one's looking into soft ticks and their ability to transmit different pathogens because they're not feeding fast and frequent like mosquitoes, right? And so the ability for them to do massive outbreaks is low. And so they are, I guess you could call them a neglected. Yeah, you know, reservoir. Medical. Yeah, exactly. And before we, we do our next break, I have a question from Instagram from a hunter that he's concerned about the current outbreak of highly pathogenic avian flu. How does it affect ducks and geese? And what does this mean for the next hunting season? Yeah, so I mean, avian influenza, it's always a threat. I mean, the question is, if avian influenza jumps from avian hosts into humans, could we have another pandemic, right? And I think that this high path avian influenza is what really spawned maybe the government to create a playbook, you know, like a decade ago for a pandemic. But the truth is then, you know, we lose steam on being prepared for pandemics and here we are. But the question relating to how it impacts ducks, geese, it, you know, it, if it is a strain that kills them off, it will have massive die-offs. But, you know, I was just looking at the numbers and it doesn't look like we've really captured a lot of dead ducks or dead geese. And so based on my probably very uninformed opinion, <laughs> uh, I doubt that the hunting season will be impacted. We haven't seen really the jump of this virus into humans and we hope it doesn't happen. And of course, to stop that, you want to limit interactions between any type of species that could have it with humans because any opportunity there is an opportunity for the virus to evolve. And we have seen it jump into mammals. Um, I just saw a report, they were seeing it in Fox, but I, 
I suspect that we won't see large scale restrictions, but it's really unclear. I think, you know, you have two perspectives like are is the population too fragile to continue to hunt and is the population infectious enough to infect humans thus should we stop hunting and so again i'm nowhere near the conversations on policy around who and <laughs> who can hunt and where we can hunt but my assumption is that we'll probably continue hunting and if anything you can make the claims that that's reducing the populations and maybe the outbreak but yeah i I, I can't speak much further on that. Those are, I guess that's my two cents. Thank you. You're listening to Science Stories. 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 All right, Dr. Goldner, I have to ask you several questions because you have a really, a really vast sort of hobbies <laughs> and a lot of activities outside the scientific activity that I think it's going to be super interesting for the people to know about. But before I ask you, I am actually particularly interested in your view about academia because mm. you've been part of it, then you have worked for the government, then you have worked for a nonprofit. So you have a lot of experience to compare academia with something else. I mean, I guess my take on academia, you kind of have to understand the government and maybe the private world a little bit too. And so if I were to briefly categorize these, you have the government, which is massive, tons of resources, but slow moving, right? And it's, it, it's hard to adapt and kind of take on innovation. And then you have the private world, which also you can have a lot of resources and they can adapt quickly and take high risks. And so that, that, you know, between government and the private world, you, you, you have a good place where you can like te a testing ground that can then translate into the government picking up systems. Whereas academia, it's really a breeding ground of knowledge and thought. And I think that, you know, how we manage the development of new ideas and then translate that into tools, whether those tools are for monetary, you know, achievement or for the greater good. Um, I think that that crosstalks is, it's established, but I think that, you know, We, we could do better. And I think a lot of that falls on academics because I think of those three groups, academics fall into what everybody calls is, uh, you know, a silo. And that's because we're just not, we're just not interacting. We can get stuck focused on our one field and lose track of how that's valuable to, you know, the rest of society. And, you know, you could claim that not everything is needs to have societal value. But the truth is knowledge has value for intrinsic sake. And so, yeah, my take on academia is that it's, <laughs> and this is a hot take, is it's a bit outdated. And I think that we need to step up how we do mentorship and how we place value in 
our systems that are educating. And, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily like the system needs to be completely redone. I just think we academics and the academic process and the values there, it's just gone too far. And I think that when I say too far, I think the people that end up working in it and the the culture that's been established, it's, it, it's toxic, right? And it's no one's fault. It's just that when the values are placed on being hyper-productive, then you lose track of like other, you know, untrackable um, priorities such as education and, you know, really educating the next generation and making sure that what we do is tractable. That's an interesting take. Thank, thanks for sharing that. So now to the fun part. I had a lot of friends of you provide me with information about you so that I could ask you interesting questions. Apparently, when you were a PhD student, you used to play soccer in a like a in the in the town's local soccer tournament. What team did you play for? I forget the name. Um, I think it was something. So I don't know. I think it was a Rick and Morty reference. Uh, maybe ball ball fondlers. So yeah, and I, I think we were pretty good if I remember right. I I you know I don't think we ever won at all, but you know it was like four or five years of playing. So it's a good time. So you're sort of a soccer player. Uh, uh, sort of is probably a good way to put it. I haven't played since last about a year ago when I got my ankle twisted in 90 degrees from I was trying to stop oh. a goal and the guy kicked through my leg and so that was it was a bummer but you know a lot of injuries in soccer I'd love it and I keep saying I can't do it but I'm gonna be back to it is it true that you played with Valderrama El Pibe Valderrama that for those who don't know <laughs> he's a Colombian and world absolute legend that is not true oh <laughs> I um no, I, I was a big Rapids fan up in Denver growing up. And so he used to play for them and I'd go watch their practices. And so I shook his hand a few times. Maybe I kicked him a ball that went stray. But yeah, no, I definitely never played with him. And is it also true that you had um, you were famous for throwing really good Halloween parties? Oh, famous, infamous. Uh, I mean, I happen to live in a house where there was a lot of uh, connections, I guess, across College Station. And, you know, especially when you're there for a long time and especially being in College Station where, you know, sometimes there's not a lot to do. Building community is important. And uh, yeah, I think Halloween parties was a, definitely a way that we, I guess, gave back to the community, if you will. Dr. Goldner, I don't know if you know, but last episode I had a PhD alumni also from A&M that she was famous for her, her video of pulling a straw out of a turtle's uh, nose. <laughs> and there is a connection with you because you also went viral on YouTube. Uh-huh. Can you, can you, could you describe the, the video to the audience, please? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's quite simple. Um, there is a man, there's a man that was quite curious and he went to a riverbed in Ecuador and he saw what was a snake and a very large snake and he wanted it to, you know, bite a stick. And so he was poking the <laughs> stick into its mouth. And then the snake jumped out at him. <laughs> so it's quite simple. And that man happened to be me. And yeah, now it's it's got 12 million views. It's taken on a life of its own. Why did um, you do that? Why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> I, again, I think curiosity is blinding. And, you know, a lot of the attitude when you're down learning about biodiversity in the tropical forest as like, you know, with students is 
you just get excited. You're learning about everything. Like, oh, get in here, you know, definitely like go check this out. And so it's like when I'm there alone, it's almost like I forgot that this is an ecosystem that definitely will, you know, fight back. And uh, yeah, you could just say I was an idiot. And I was. <laughs> I also know you play, you play the drums. Uh, yes. And then you played in a, in a bar in College Station. Did you have a band or what? Yeah, I guess I can say I was in a band. And um, yeah, actually, in the video that I, I produced from Poking the Anaconda, um, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I guess I could update my CV. But it, it basically, it was I've received money in partnership with Playboy from it. I've received money in partnership with Yahoo. I've received money from American Funnies Home Videos and Shark Week. So I suppose this is my 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 claim to fame. <laughs> did, did I listen correctly? Playboy gave you money for that video. Yeah, you yep. Why? Um I honestly I think it was just a misappropriated link. Somehow, you know, Anaconda can be related to some sort of content <laughs> they're into. <laughs> But, you know, I got a dollar or so, so that was great. <laughs> and then the audience, uh, please asks me to ask you about Pokemon Go. Do you play Pokemon Go? Uh, yes, I've started playing Pokemon Go. I'm behind the curve. But I honestly, I love it. And I constantly think of ways that we could do a similar platform and structure for, you know, other apps. So say, for example, you wanted people to get involved with their backyard and understand ecology. Why not just start having them tag their plants and mix it up with some of those plant ID and biodiversity apps? I, I think that'd be a good mashup. And then- That's a then great idea. We'll be learning. I actually remember a talk from a Japanese researcher that he mentioned that when he was young, he used to play a, a game similar to what you just described, but he collected butterflies. So he knew everything about butterflies and all the diversity and all the species. So it's a good idea, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could run with it, but I never will. I think all my ideas are good. <laughs> and then finally, somebody asks me to question you about your current D&D &D character. <laughs> uh, so you, yeah, play, you play Dungeons and Dragons? It's Yes, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I think, man, when did I start playing? I just, I, I played a few times and I just recently ended being the actual dungeon master, which I will say is a very difficult endeavor, but my current character, <laughs> what is my, I don't even know what my current character, this must be someone that is playing with me because they're probably curious too. You're also a climber, right? Yeah. Yep. Love rock climbing. Um, currently injured right now, um, popped uh, my finger. And so it's been about five months, but you know, I'm, I'm telling myself all this weight I'm putting on is muscle. So We'll see. <laughs> and then finally, you also participated from, so I'm here in San Marcos, and I know you participated from the spear fishing contest here in San Marcos, Ooh. right? Yes. Can't say anything more positive about that. Great um, experience? Yeah, I loved it. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's a great cause. I mean, who doesn't want to go hunting locally in like a perfectly clear stream for something that's invasive, you know? And they're, they're a bit, they're tough to find. Um, and I actually have a plaque here for catching one of the largest plecos, I think in 2019. And I'm so proud of that. Maybe it's 2018, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to look into it. I'm probably going to do it next year. Oh, you absolutely have to do that. And, uh, you know, one of my friends, he always makes fun of me because this is one of the biggest fish we found it at night and <laughs> I was hovering over it and I missed. 
(laughs) So luck and it swam away and then I luckily found it again. But uh, yeah, it's such a great event. Um, I think it pulls the community together. And the the saddest thing is I never made it to the fish fry at the end. Hawaiian Spears? Uh, Yep. All right, Dr. Goldner, is there anything else you would like to add? I don't think so. That's been quite thorough, Um, kind of uh, surprisingly thorough. I'm really happy that you came on the show. Thank you so much for participating in Science Stories. Good to be here. Thank you. Wow.